The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think that they underestimated this largely white crowd. You know, people tend to think of white people as being more sympathetic towards the police, especially in contrast to the Black Lives Matter protests that had been happening, you know, sort of calling on our communities to sort of right size or even abolish police. So unfortunately, the Capitol Police mistakenly believed that these folks were their friends and allies. And I'm not the only one who feels that way. Even former MPD Chief Ramsey acknowledged it as well, saying you know, there's really no other way to look at it other than this was a result of unconscious or implicit bias. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 5th, 2022. Although many individual police officers acted heroically on January 6th, The successful attack on the Capitol by a pro-Trump mob seeking to disrupt the certification of the electoral votes is one of the biggest policing failures in American history. Not only did the Capitol Police fail to prepare for the attack, but many members of the mob were themselves police officers from around the country. Vita Johnson is an associate professor of law at Georgetown Law School, an author of a recent Law Review article and companion Lawfare post exploring the tactical and structural policing failures that contributed to January 6th. I spoke with her about what the police should have done differently and the role that race and politics play in how police react to domestic extremism. One note, this podcast was recorded on June 20th, before some of the recent revelations of the January 6th committee. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 5th. Vita Johnson on how the police contributed to the January 6th insurrection. I'm curious, before we get into you know, your, your piece on, on the police, I'm curious what you've made of these hearings thus far, either with respect to the issue you've been writing about, police involvement in January 6th, or just generally. Well, I have to say I've been really impressed by the quality of the hearings. It's very clear that the people working on the hearings have really done their homework. There's been intensive research. Um, the fact that they have been able to make so many of their points using the the people involved, the Republicans who helped um, sort of orchestrate this big lie has been really impressive um, to me. I, you know, I 
I mean, not to get too much into politics, I'd sort of given up hope on the Democrats a little bit. So to see this, you know, high level of confidence was really um, satisfying. But I, I'm curious to see where it goes, how it's going to end. It's it, it all seems really illuminating. And there were plenty of things I, I didn't know going into into the hearing. So it's been it's really been fascinating. Has it changed your views on the role of police, either the Capitol Police or police in general or law enforcement in general. Um, obviously, the the first hearing, the kind of opening hearing, had some pretty powerful testimony from uh, you know one of the Capitol Police officers. And I, I'm curious if that sort of changed your view. Well, I, th- I think that's a, a really good question. I think that officer, I'm forgetting her name, um, she was, you know, obviously a very attractive, um, sympathetic view of what police engagement looked like on January 6th. And her account, I I think, really illustrates some of the points that I make in my article, which is that the Capitol Police were unprepared, didn't have the right equipment to meet the the level of violence that the police were, were greeted with on January 6th. But it doesn't, of course, show the side of, you know, the police complicity in the in the attacks. Um, I also, she had one description of there being so much blood that they were slipping in it. You know, obviously I wasn't there, but that struck me as um, potentially hyperbole on her part, or just, you know, a misremembering of a very traumatic event. So, so let's let's get into your to your piece. So, you you've published a really great um, law review article in the Brooklyn Law Review uh, about uh, police and, and January sixth, and then you kind of adapted it into a lawfare post. And I want to kind of walk through the main arguments you make in, in both of those pieces. So, in your lawfare piece in particular, you identify four ways in which law enforcement enabled, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes quite intentionally, the January sixth attack. And so, I want to kind of want to go through each of them and un- unpack them. The first factor that you mentioned is that the Capitol Police underestimated the crowd. They underestimated the crowd before in terms of the warnings that uh, were pretty clear on kind of open source intelligence of people gathering. They underestimated the crowd when the crowd was there. So what did the Capitol Police know before the crowd forced itself into the Capitol? And, And maybe most importantly, what led to their failure to adequately prepare? Okay, great. That's that's such an important question, probably the question that people in the Capitol Police are asking themselves or have been asking themselves. So first off, um, I want to dispel any myths about the quality of Capitol Police or their funding. They're an incredibly well-funded police department. They have over 2,000 officers to really protect us to a handful of buildings, if you think about it. Their police department is the size of the police department of San Diego, one of the top 10 largest cities in the country. So it's a really big police force. And they had warning signs, um, right? So there had been, you know, it, it feels both really recent and like ancient history, but you know, in the months leading up to January 6th, there had been armed Trump supporting militia groups and individuals um, present at vote counting locations throughout the country. So there were news stories about what was taking place in Arizona and Michigan with the militia groups present while votes were being counted. 
there were two armed QAnon supporters arrested in Philadelphia, also going to be present during um, vote counting. We know that there were armed militia who were present during protests in major cities throughout the United States during the summer and fall of 2020, the protests about the killing of George Floyd. Um, So there should have been a general understanding that far-right groups were getting dangerous, violent, and were armed. And that's against the backdrop of a lot of other things that were happening. So we know that there were groups like the Proud Boys um, and the Oath Keepers that were both participating in these sorts of protests, but also just sort of growing in strength and um, growing in popularity. Sometimes at the urging of Trump, there was his famous quip during a debate um, telling the the Proud Boys to stand by, and that increased their membership. So, so the Capitol Police should have known that those sorts of far-right groups were dangerous and were related to what was going to happen on January 6th. But then they had specific threats um, from the NYPD and the FBI um, that there was going to be violence on January 6th. But despite those um, sort of general and specific warnings, it seems like the Capitol Police were pretty unprepared. They didn't have a full complement of staff. So it's it's somewhat common when there's going to be a big day to sort of, I think the term is uh, um, recall people who have days off, um, but they didn't do that. They had insufficient staff. And probably the biggest problem in terms of, you know, police being prepared is they didn't have helmets or gas masks or riot gear. And so not only do you have sort of a paltry number of police on on staff for what was going to take place, you know, over 10,000 people descending on the Capitol, they weren't they weren't dressed appropriately. And because of the tactics the crowd ended up using, those police officers were, you know, involved, ended up being involved in hand to hand combat when they could have had some other crowd control um, measures in place um, that they just didn't didn't use like aerosols and things like that. Um, So they ended up in hand-to-hand, hours of hand-to-hand combat with an angry mob. And, you know, your, your big question is, why were they unprepared? And I think that it's largely because they underestimated the, this largely white crowd. You know, people tend to think of white people as being more sympathetic towards the police especially in contrast to the Black Lives Matter protests that had been happening, you know, sort of calling on our communities to sort of right size or even abolish police. So I think, unfortunately, the police mistakenly believed that these folks were their friends and allies. And unfortunately, I'm not the only one who feels that way. Even MPD officer, former MPD um, Chief uh, Ramsey acknowledged it as well, saying there's really no other way to look at it other than this was a result of unconscious or implicit bias. So we know that's at least one way in which policing helped enable the capital siege on January 6th. But before I go too far, I want to also just acknowledge that the vast majority 
of people go into policing for all the right reasons and that all Americans and probably all people suffer from implicit or unconscious biases. Even um, people of color have those biases against people of color. So this isn't this critique of law enforcement is really just one of failing to really assess accurately the situation in a way that they're supposed to assess the situation. It's not, um, in this instance, you know, I'm not um, saying there was anything willful involved in, in some of the, this underestimating this largely white crowd. I, I want to dig in a little bit more into this question of perception of threat and its relation to the demographics of the crowd and whether it's implicit or explicit, because I, you know, a point you make, and I think this has been widely noticed. And, and I think this was quite, quite notable just on January 6th. I remember thinking this myself, just the contrast between how the rioters on January 6th were treated relative to how a lot of the, the protests, the disturbances, some of which were, were riots. I mean, there were obviously a lot of things going on in the summer of 2020 with, uh, in connection to the, to the Black Lives Matter protests and the, and the George Floyd police killing. Now, I mean, obviously, it's a little difficult to compare because with, with the summer of 2020, there were a lot of things going on, right? You had, you know, every, you know, you had a range of events from completely peaceful protests that went off without a hitch in which some police marched with them to, on the other hand, you know, protests that were that were treated quite brutally by police to riots that needed to be, you know, dealt with in, in whatever way. With January 6th, you kind of have one event and it's hard to kind of re- replay that. But I, I was hoping you could you could speak more about how you view that contrast and also what, what you think should be done about it. Because there's always this difficult question, I think, when you see a disparity in law enforcement with respect to two populations. Do you ratchet down or do you ratchet up, right? Is the, is the right answer that we should, you know, we should have treated everything in relation to, let's say, Black Lives Matter in the same relatively lenient way that the January 6th protests were treated, or to the extent that Black Lives Matter or some of those events needed to be treated with a certain degree of severity, that's the same severity that should have been treated, uh, that the January 6th rioter should be treated with. It, it strikes me that that's kind of a difficult and a separate question than is there a disparity? Well, I think... Number one, there absolutely was a disparity in the sort of uh, policing re- response we saw those to those two different events. But I think it's also important to note that we're talking about different police departments. So the Capitol Police largely was not involved in any of the Washington, D.C. protests in the summer and fall of 2020, as far as I know. That was mostly um, the Metropolitan Police Department, which is D.C.'s um, main police department, and some federal agencies that were different than Capitol Police. Um, But I think the point is there, and to answer your, your big question about what should we do, I think, you know, Police are supposed to be experts in community safety. And I think the police response that we saw in in the summer and fall of 2020 was too big of a response to the threat posed by the Black Lives Matter movement, which was a generally a peaceful movement calling on there to be less violence, right? That was the whole point of those protests. But because it was a protest that was critical of police, police departments generally seem to sort of overreact to the threat of those large peaceful protest groups 
as opposed to having specific intelligence about what was planned on January 6th and underreacting to that. And then I think that's the, the big problem that many people have rightly pointed out about the police response to these two different sort of social movements that, are go- that were going on, sort of at the same time, but also in reaction to one another. Yeah. So you, you make an interesting point that I want to draw out because I think there's a nuanced issue here, which is what is the reason for the different treatment, right? Because we can say, well, one group of people is predominantly white, right? And therefore, that's the police are reacting to, whereas another group of people are predominantly black or people of color, that's they're reacting to. Or one can say, well, it's it's not that actually. What it is, is that one group of people is perceived as pro-police, right? Um, and another group of people is perceived as anti-police. And obviously, those two issues are not totally separable. But one might wonder, which is the stronger kind of causal mechanism, right? Especially given that Police, although they are maybe not as diverse as we'd like them to be, are hardly all white, especially in cities in which you know the majority of people are are, are black or, or or of color. Uh, so I, I'm I'm curious. Do you think there's any way to untie to separate the demographics and how those play on various implicit or explicit biases versus the question of this is a friendly quote unquote crowd versus uh, this is an unfriendly crowd? Well, I think this is such an important question, but I think it's important to step back for a second. Remember, the police are supposed to be public servants that are supposed to keep us all safe. So they should not have different responses because of the political messages of the groups that they're policing. But I think you're exactly right that it was a mix of both. One is that they understood that one group was calling to limit the power of police, while the other wasn't necessarily making a police-specific message. And then you have the issue of the Black Lives Matter protests of generally being more racially diverse. Though in many cities and places like Portland, they were still largely white crowds. And you saw this intense um, police reaction um, really over the top in many instances and creating violence. I also like to think about what happened in the J-20 protests back in um, 2017, um, where just as uh, Donald Trump was being inaugurated, um, police in Washington, D.C., again, a different police department, really created a scenario where people were corralled into a small group and there was some property damage. But the police and prosecution response was really strong and lots of people were prosecuted, none of them successfully, um, but it was a very intense sort of political reaction to the political message of the protesters by police. And so I do think that this sort of gets at the the main point of my article, which is that we've got a problem in the culture of policing that would allow January 6th to happen. But also, if you look at the policing responses to some of these other um, political movements, it's troubling. Yeah, I I, I very much appreciate and and take your point that police should not mistreat people who don't like police. That, that's not how this is supposed to work. At the same time, and maybe this is kind of an odd second best thinking that I'm, I'm engaging in, I, I'd rather the police not be racist and be very hypersensitive to criticisms of the police than, than the opposite. But I guess, I, I guess neither are ideal, but if I had to choose, right? But, but I think this actually does nicely get into the, the, the second main factor that you talked about, the one that for me personally was the most disturbing, which was the presence of 
police officers, not necessarily capital police officers, but police officers from around the country in the January 6th riot. You know, we see a, a somewhat similar story with respect to uh, active duty uh, military, especially a lot of veterans. This strikes me as a very parallel story. And so I'd love to for you to just talk more about what we know about the involvement of, of active duty or, you know, of, of police officers um, in January 6th. And what is going on in policing across this country? Yeah, it's, it's pretty scary. Um, so we know that there were dozens of police officers who were present at both the rally preceding the breach of the Capitol and at the Capitol building itself. We know that uh, two police officers have already been convicted for their role um, in what happened. They breached the, the, the Capitol. And what's going on in policing? That's, that's the million dollar question here. That's really what a lot of my research has, has focused on. But I think we've got two, two problems, both of which are, are, are very troubling. Either you have police who are so delusional that they actually believed that the election was stolen, or you have police who want to undermine democracy, right? Those are the two options. So if you're attending this rally, either you believe a conspiracy theory that the election was stolen, or you want to undo the election results, a fair election result, right? So so those, that's, a, that's a problem when you think about what we trust American police with. We trust them with weapons, access to really sensitive information. And if they want to undermine democracy or if they can't uh, separate fact from fiction, this is completely unacceptable. So both options are just very bad and scary in my mind. And I think it also highlights another issue in policing, which is that police are just too comfortable in their jobs. Like, can you imagine telling your boss, I'd like to take tomorrow off because I want to go follow a conspiracy theory or I want to undo the election results? Like both both would you know raise serious question in your boss's mind. But yet that's what dozens of police officers and, and as you point out, military officials and military officers did on January 6th. And it, that's just too much job security in my mind. You know, it's a it's a real it goes to the strength of police unions that officers thought they could just take the day off of work and there'd be no repercussions. I feel like this is where two law professors talking to each other should make a joke about tenure. But uh, neither of us have, neither, if, I, if I'm correct, neither of us have tenure yet. So so no no riots for us, I think. Yeah, not yet. I, I, I do wonder more seriously, though, if, if this issue of police involvement directly in January 6th relates a little bit to the previous conversation we were having about how the crowd was perceived. Because I do think one thing that's really struck me, and again, I agree, this is absolutely no excuse, right? Delusion at some point is not a, you know, a bar to moral or legal culpability. But a lot of these people really thought that they were standing up for the Constitution, they were standing up for the rule of law, you know, that, that the, I'm sure some of the police that were involved in January 6th thought that they were acting as police in, in the kind of truest, deepest sense of upholding law enforcement. And you know, I, I do wonder whether that maybe was part of of why the Capitol Police reacted in such a kind of milk toast way. Because while there are lots of veterans and military people and police in the crowd, they must be on our side in some way. And it just turned out very much not to be the uh, the case. 
there were reports by Capitol Police that um, there were members of the of the mob that were flashing their badges to gain entry into buildings. So I, I certainly think that that was, in fact, something that was going on. And, you know, I don't know how widespread it was. I mean, we know that there are at least 40 police officers that are have were proven to be at the, I don't know if proven, but have been documented as being either at the rally or at the Capitol that day. Um, and God knows how many more there were. We know there were about 10,000 people. Um, so it was a not insignificant amount. Um, and it's from, I think, at least 13 states. So it's it's reason for concern for sure, um, and probably um, in my mind one of the, the the scarier ways to just imagine. And you know, this isn't the only place that we've seen this sort of um, conspiracy thinking in in policing or the inability to separate fact from fiction. We saw that there was there's a lot of um, there's some evidence that there's QAnon supporters in American police forces, anti-mask, COVID deniers um, on police. I mean, it really became a sort of common thing for police to not be wearing masks, even in 2020. And certainly at this point, you never see police officers wearing masks, even in places where they're required, like in subways and things like that. So, so there is certainly, I don't know, just a worry of mine that police are not adequately able to assess risk in lots of different areas, right? And are not good at, or, or some of them at least, are not good critical thinkers. And again, we're giving them so much power, right? We as a society give police access to sensitive information. We give them guns. We give them, they're the only people in our society apart from the military that have the ability to use lethal force and if they're lacking in critical thinking skills, if they are falling for conspiracy theories, this is really scary. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 
separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So you've described this as a kind of conspiratorial strain that runs through some American policing. Um, and I guess I think I have two questions about that. One is, and maybe I'm sort of slicing the bologna too thin here, how much of this is conspiracy theory, right? Like weird QAnon, Pizzagate stuff versus just straight up white nationalism. Obviously they're related in some sense, but they're also distinct, right? You have, you know, plenty of people of color who believe in QAnon too. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting heterogeneous movement. 
So that's my first question. And then the second question is, how much of this is a problem of policing versus, well, police are just people. People are drawn from the population. The prevalence of these views in the population is X. And so, you know, the prevalence of these views within policing is is also that. Or is there something like particularly problematic about what is happening in the culture of police over and above the issues that we are seeing in the public at large? This is one of those things I think about all the time. Um, so if you go back to Charlottesville and just after um, Charlottesville in 2017, ABC did a poll and they found that about 10% of Americans who were polled thought it was acceptable to hold neo-Nazi views. And just after um, the Capitol, I think it was Reuters had a poll that found about 12% of Americans were sympathetic towards the plight of the rioters. Okay, so let's just assume those numbers are are right. And so you've got about 10 to 12% of the population that has these sort of extremist views. Well, let's just guess that those polls are right. And then if you consider that white men are overrepresented on pretty much every police department in the country. And we know that white men are the group most likely to hold white supremacist viewpoints. I think it's very safe to say that this is a problem of America and a problem in policing, right? So it's, I think, easy to extrapolate from those numbers that there's a potential that about 10% of police officers or more hold these extremist views. And if that's the case, again, because police are public servants who are supposed to protect everyone and we give them a tremendous amount of power and force, this is a very big problem whether or not police are more likely to hold these views or similarly likely to have these views as the rest of America because of the amount of power we give police. Yeah. And I, I wonder if it, it, it might be even another factor. I'm curious you think about this. Another factor that might uh, mean that the prevalence of these views among police is higher than among the background population or even among the background population controlling for, for geogender and, and, and racial background, which is that both the sort of psychological profile of a police officer, which is you know, again, I'm, I'm one, one can think of it perhaps as a sort of an enforcement profile, which again, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. We need people to enforce norms. But if you combine that, then also with the sorts of policing that is done, and, you know, there's obviously debate about the extent of which, but I think no one can deny that policing is a form of social control. And there are obviously racial disparities baked into the system at some level, right, putting aside the details, you, you end up with people that are both selected to perhaps hold certain extremist and supremacist views. And then through the process of that are exposed to scenarios, which then reinforce the views that they already have, therefore making the problem worse. Right? Again, we might not know what the number is, but, but you know, if, if 10% is the floor, it, it seems very unlikely that it's the ceiling. I think that's absolutely right. And, and as you say, you know, the ability to control others, the legal use of deadly force, the ability to openly carry weapons, the specialized training and access to information that law enforcement possess, those are all going to be attractive to people who hold um, white supremacist views because they want to subjugate people of color and those drawn towards authoritarianism. 
So you, you've got this sort of perfect storm where, you know, these groups overlap sometimes, but not all the time. I mean, my previous research, I wrote in 2019, an article called KKK and the PD, where I explored explicit racial bias in police departments. And sort of through that research, I was constantly discarding other extremist viewpoints because, you know, I'm writing an article about one specific thing, but, you know, it kept coming across, you know, stories about, you know, groups like the Proud Boys who, you know, they, they certainly hold some white supremacist views, but their central tenant is more like um, misogyny, for example, or, you know, these um, militia groups like Oath Keepers and Three Percenters who are, you know, anti-government groups that are largely staffed by former police and former military. You, you see a lot of overlap in that sort of mindset, the, the sort of white supremacy and, you know, the authoritarianism. So you just, there's, you know, obviously there's a ton of overlap between fascism and, and racism. The last factor you mentioned in, in your uh, law for piece, and I think here you're kind of appropriately circumspect about it because we're still figuring out the facts and, and this way might be the most sort of explosive set of allegations of Capitol police actually engaging and actually directly facilitating uh, the January 6th a- attacks. And so what is what do we know right now? Obviously, there are investigations going on. What what, what can we say so far about uh, this you know, particularly serious uh, situation? Yeah, I, I think this is, you know, again, um, something that that worries the people in, in the Capitol Police. So we know that there was an absolute absence of leadership on January 6th. Then Capitol Police Chief Sund never communicated with any of the officers that day. He never came over the radio and he resigned promptly after January 6th. It's it's not clear to me whether he resigned on his own or whether he was asked to resign. We also know that there were uh, there are dozens of Capitol Police that are under investigation. Um, six were suspended. Um, unfortunately, the Capitol Police are is a uniquely opaque police department. Most police departments are um, pretty hard to get information out of, but Capitol Police actually cannot be subject to FOIA. Um, And so there's even less information about Capitol Police than other police departments. But we do know that one officer has been indicted federally for um, some alleged uh, obstruction of justice um, and advice he gave to someone on social media about how to sort of downplay his role on January 6th. And and that officer allegedly said that he was um, politically sympathetic to the plight of the protesters. So I think we know that there were at least some Capitol Police who were sympathetic with the rioters. Um, We saw, I think there's at least three officers who were investigated for taking selfies with rioters. Um, there's some video that seems to suggest that the police allowed protesters behind um, barriers to gain entry to the Capitol, whether they did that because they were so exhausted and overwhelmed or did they do that to um, actually aid protesters? You know, I think only they know. But I think for the, all the reasons we talked about earlier, it's not hard to imagine that at least some of the Capitol Police were more sympathetic to the people who were trying to gain entry into the Capitol to those inside doing their jobs. 
So we have a problem, uh, and hopefully we can do something about it. You, you don't address this part in, in the lawfare piece, but you go, but you spend a good chunk of the underlying law review article talking about various reforms, and and uh, they're they're pretty wide ranging. Um, and so I'm curious if you could sort of talk through, maybe not all of them, but just what you think sort of the top one or two or three reforms we could make to prevent this repeat, right? Either kind of specifically riots at federal government buildings or more generally this problem of uh, extremist sympathies in in police departments, especially uh, on the extreme right. Sure. But before we do that, I just want to point out that I think there's the fourth issue um, that I raised in the piece that maybe we didn't get to, which is that police have underestimated the far right for years. And I know I've touched on it earlier, but I I just want to mention that there's all those like sort of recent warnings that I'd mentioned before about what was going on in 2020 um, with militia groups showing up in support of Trump. But, you know, that's not the only sort of far right extremism that police had to operate from and, and, and should have and should have made them more alert on January 6th. Um, there was the Unite the Right rally in 2017 in Charlottesville that I talked about previously. But there were also these mass shootings that were happening in 2018 and 2019. There was that shooting in El Paso. The person who is alleged to have done that was um, motivated by anti-immigrant sentiment some, and was a pro-Trump person and killed um, a number of people. There were those anti-Semitic shootings at synagogues. Um, I think one in Pittsburgh. There was also one in, in San Diego in a suburb there. And, you know, there's just also a history of far-right extremism. Um, there was a standoff in Oregon, anti-government movement. So, there, so, so police should have seen a threat from the far right. And we know that that domestic terrorism is a bigger threat to the United States than terrorism from the outside, outside of the United States. But yet that's not where law enforcement dollars and priorities have been allocated. It has been largely focused on threats from outside of the United States. And and even the domestic terrorism budgets have been sort of disproportionately focused on groups like Antifa and Black Lives Matter. And so there has been just sort of this, you know, long standing, years long sort of ignoring of the threat of far right extremism to the detriment of pretty much every minority group, right? We've got, you know, immigrants that are under attack. We have, remember the shooting at the Pulse nightclub. Um, so we've got gay people under attack. We have, um, there was a shooting at a, at a yoga studio by a incel, an involuntary celibate, a, sort of a misogynist group. And we have violence against people of color. So We've got anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, homophobia. So we have all of these threats from the far right that are being ignored by law enforcement so that they can focus on threats by Muslims in the Muslim world and Black Lives Matter and Antifa in the United States. Like it's just a mismatch of policing priorities and and a real problem that makes us all less safe. Yeah, and I I imagine that... A lot of the factors that we've spoken of throughout this conversation, questions of implicit bias, demographics, you know, all, all of those are in part, I suspect, they, they go they go toward this, this mismatch. So uh, turning then to solutions, I imagine 
you know, an obvious solution is, well, fix the mismatch, right? <laughs> At the end of the day, policymakers could just decide um, this is this is no good and we're, and we're going to re- rebalance. But I'm particularly curious in the internal reforms that could be made to police departments, because, again, if if this is a intentional failure, that's very disturbing. But in a sense, that's kind of easy to solve. If it's an intentional failure, there's an intentional solution. But if the problem is a background set of cultural and demographic factors that cause even good faith police officers simply and good faith police leadership to just misunderstand the nature of the problem, that's a harder nut to crack. And so I'm very curious about what sort of internal reforms and changes you think would would help move the needle in the short term or the long term. Uh, Great question. So I I think you're absolutely right that this is a um, a cultural problem in policing. And so a big sort of obvious answer to this problem is you've got to fix the culture of policing, but you know, easier said than done. So I think the first place to start is for the reasons we talked about, we want police officers who, who care about threats to groups other than white men, right? So we need policing to be more diverse, we actually are right now in a moment where policing is becoming less diverse. So some of the diversity hiring that took place in the 1990s that led to there being more Black police officers, that's going away as those officers retire. And there are not a lot of young Black people who are lining up to become police officers right now because of this sort of loss of trust by police in, in black and brown communities. So there aren't, there's not going to continue to be a number of black people in policing based on the sort of demographic shifts that are happening within policing. And sort of historically in police policing, women have been very underrepresented. So those are big problems and they're really hard to fix because right now policing doesn't look attractive to people of color and to women for a number of reasons. If you just think, for example, about how police departments tend to recruit, right, who they try to recruit and what those advertisements look like, they tend to be sort of going for the more, the people that are more interested in the militaristic aspects of policing, you know, showing pictures of people in SWAT team uniforms and that kind of thing. But obviously, even just making sort of a concentrated effort to have a more a more diverse police force is not going to solve all the problems, but it, it is an important first step for the reasons we talked about before. White men are more likely to be politically conservative and are less likely, I think, to um, appreciate the threats of um, posed by other white people and certainly by other far right extremists. And so having a more diverse police force will certainly help. Um, and particularly um, having more women on police forces proven to reduce violence by police. And if there's less violence at the hands of police, you're actually more likely to recruit more people of color and other and, and more gay people to policing. Um, so there's a lot of benefits that would that would flow from having a more diverse police force. But the biggest issue in my mind is we need to vet police better. You know, there need to be very serious social media checks before people get hired as part of background checks. You know, a lot of these warning signs are there. I often tell the story about a police officer in Little Rock, Arkansas, who was hired after admitting during his background check that he had gone to a KKK rally. 
And they were like, well, at least he was honest. I'm assuming he didn't go as an anthropological research project. No. no, he said that he went as a, as a teenager. I think he said he wasn't sure whether he was 17 or 18. And they were like, well, he was honest. And they hired him anyway. Well, he went on to kill an unarmed Black child there. And this was information that only came out through the civil lawsuit. But I think that really points at the problem in in the way we recruit police officers. This is often a, um, a career that people have for a very long time. And so making sure that the people we hire are people who don't hold extremist views in the first place is probably the most important thing we can do. And so doing better with background checks is, is hugely important. And I think police departments need to really think about hiring outsiders to do that. Because right now, there's it's just human nature to want to hire people that are like you, right? You relate to them you or you know someone who knows that person. And so you, you're willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. That's how our, our minds work, right? We, we have these cognitive biases that keep us from being able to see things that, are, that might be apparent to other people. And so I think if you have people who aren't in policing making these hiring decisions, you're more likely to get better quality police in the first place. I think another really important step is we have to monitor people after they become police. We know that people can become more politically conservative as they age. If you think about who gets hired as a police officer, they tend to be people in their early 20s and sometimes in some places even in their late teens. But we know people may be be police officers for 20 some odd years. And so the person you are politically in your early 20s is pretty different than who you might be in your 40s. And so being able to monitor people periodically during their tenure as police department in a police department is really important to make sure you don't miss someone who becomes you know, more radical, more extreme in their politics or their viewpoints as they you know, remain on the force and enjoy tenure on the force. And so I think that's a really important step that almost no police department is doing now. Um, there should be sort of routine, periodic assessments of of what's going on in with the sort of ideologies of the police officers during their time on on the force. To close out, I, I want to zoom out a little bit and, and get your thoughts on how your thinking about this particular issue has interacted with your sort of broader thinking about policing. Obviously, in, in a sense, the last two years about American, of the kind of public conversation, as it will, is about, quote unquote, defunding the police pro or against, which is kind of a terrible way of framing the issue because it hides so many complexities and it's gotten very polarized. It, it does seem to me, and I'm curious what, what you think, if you'd agree or not, that Listening to your set of reforms, all of which sound both important and doable to me, it kind of shows that neither that framing is not very helpful, right? Because on the one hand, just giving the police more resources is not going to be useful if those resources are used on more militarization, more hiring of the same problematic people, et cetera, et cetera. And you have all of your all of your equipment in a locked storage facility on the day that 10,000 people come to overthrow democracy. I mean, right? So you can have all the funding in the world, but if you don't deploy it and you don't and you can't assess risk, it's all kind of useless. Absolutely. A hundred percent. On the other hand, as you pointed out, if we want 
policing to be a profession or more, you know, more professional, better, right? Better quality of people. We want to be, we want to be able to screen out people with problematic backgrounds or what the, you know, whatever the case is. Defunding the police also seems very problematic, right? I mean, you have to, you, you need to pay for a high quality police force. And, and so I'm, I'm curious whether you think that ultimately the, the problem is, as it always is, just a more complicated one. It's we need a better police and how to do that is the real trick that that is is hard to figure out. I do think we spend generally too much money on policing um, for really diminished returns. I think January 6th and so much of Uvalde and so many things have shown us the police don't really do a good job of keeping everyone safe because of a number of issues involving misplaced police priorities, sort of a general punching down instead of punching up in terms of what police uh, priorities are. There's just a lot of issues in policing that I'm not sure can be fixed. But I agree with you that it's not as simple as, as simply defunding police. That being said, I do think we need to absolutely right-size policing. Um, and I think all of the issues that we have talked about today show us how vulnerable communities of color are. Right? When you think about the fact that there's a significant proportion of police that are sympathetic to far-right extremist views, we know that we are living in a place where these public servants don't work for everyone, and that's a real problem. Well, I suspect this is not the last time we'll be talking about uh, policing reform in the United States. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for the, the writing the post for Lawfare, for the excellent Law Review article that goes into a lot more detail on all these issues. So thank, thanks so much for sharing your expertise. Thank you so much for having me. This is great fun. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, the aftermath. Check out our written work on lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The pod- hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>